Oh, thank you, John. You guys can be seated. I am thrilled to be here bringing the, the message today. I, I love you guys. I, I love this church. Uh, in August, my family will celebrate nine years here at Capshaw, and we, we absolutely love it here. And um, Oh, well, wasn't what I was going for, but you know. Uh, <laughs> But we, we do. We love it. You guys are our family, and, and I, I just I wake up every Sunday so excited, usually so excited I can't sleep Saturday night. You can ask my wife. She, she endures all my tossing and turning and last-minute ideas and things like that. But anyway, um, let me add my welcome to Pastor John's and uh, also say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers, including my father. Happy Father's Day, D-Dub. And um, that's, that's Daddy Warren, D-W-D-Dub. That was the transition. Took 10 years to get there, but he is D-Dub to everybody. So um, anyway, happy Father's Day. And something else, too. Um, just, I would like to say thank you to any of the male mentors and leaders in our lives. You know, they do not necessarily have to be our father um, to be a, a positive influence. And in a time within our society where uh, male leadership, male head, headship is kind of looked down upon um, and, and rejected. Um, we praise God for, for strong Christian um, male leaders. And uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Kings this morning. We're going to be in chapter um, 4. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for the right handling of his word this morning. God, we thank you for the um, men and women you've put in our life as mentors. Lord, we thank you for fathers. We thank you for the male leaders that have shaped us. Lord, as we open your word this morning, um, God, I pray that I will just get out of the way and your truth uh, will be all that is heard. Lord, um, soften the ears of those that will hear and God, give me clarity going forward. In Christ's name, amen. As we've been going through this, this study of, of, of 2 Kings, learning about Elijah and Elisha, I, I realized um, there's a, a feeling that uh, a relationship they had that I can identify with. I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but I can identify with that, that mentor-protege relationship. That the two the two men had one of the things I love so much about being here at Capshaw is the opportunity we get as pastors to to pour into the lives of of young men that will surrender to ministry and eventually become pastors. And um, you guys remember one of my early proteges, for lack of a better word, Sean Speakman. He was, I believe, 15 years old when he began jumping around the stage up here and he was. Now you know exactly who I'm talking about. But, but um, he was here for about six years as our intern um, before uh, God has now settled him at a church in Shorewood, Illinois. And I tell you that to tell you that as I open the word and I'm preaching this morning, he is doing the exact same thing for the first time. So he has been entrusted by the elder leadership of Grace Bible Church, which is a fabulous church near Chicago. Um, he's been entrusted to rightly handle the word that, this morning, I, I got up. I just wanted to share that with you. I got up this morning, called him, told him how proud I was, made him cry, you know, all that stuff. But um, 
Anyway, I just wanted to share that. Let's go to 2 Kings verse 4. I'm going to be reading chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. This is a, a narrative. This is a, a, a story. And so I am going to read it in its entirety. I went, I went over kind of different ways to break this down, but we're just going to read the whole thing. So I'll read. You guys climb aboard. And this is the story of Elisha, the Shunammite woman. Um, she's childless. She's given a child. Child dies. Elisha, through the power of God, raises the child from the dead. So this story. So 2 Kings 4, verse 8. The word of God reads, One day Elisha went to Shunam, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him, and she went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. She set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take your staff in your hand, take my staff in your hand and go. 
If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned and met them and told the child has not awakened. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and laid on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house. And he went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. So hallelujah. Praise God. But without that tiny happy ending on the end of that, our fleshly, flesh-minded brain would have trouble with that story. We're going to get to that a little later. But what do we see early, early on? We see early on this woman's love for God, and it's evidenced by the, the kindness and the niceties she extends toward the man of God in Elisha. So he would travel this road back and forth. He would travel regularly. And she says, well, let's, let's build a guest room for him. Let's do it on our roof. And the, the, the roof then was that, that was the, the backyard kind of, of today. If I go in my backyard and start smoking ribs, I've got friends that I've never met before from all over. Just show up. And, um, you know, the, the, the fellowship hall of the day was the roof. And so this was just been a very sweet gesture to provide a place for this, this man of God to study, recharge, relax. And you'll notice nowhere in this passage do we see of, or hear of any ulterior motive or nothing that this woman desired. She merely wanted to show her appreciation and love and her love for God and his prophet. So that brings us to our, our first point this morning. We're going to have three. The believer in honoring God, will find himself or herself performing acts of kindness and generosity. Hospitality is the, the mark or a mark of the righteous throughout the pages of Scripture. The woman, again, seeking nothing, just decides to honor this man. She says, let's make him a roof up there with a bed, chair, lamp. Whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Just providing something nice, something that says... We care about you. So as I, I, I read through this scripture numerous times, kind of trying to decide, you know, what direction do I want to take um, with how we break down the text? A question kept popping into my mind here, and that was this. Why aren't Christians considered the most 
generous and hospitable people in the world. Now I understand that we are misrepresented by our media and by our world, right? We're, we're ignorant and hateful and a few other great choice words like that. But, but I wonder if you just went to a, a man on the street and you said, quick, briefly, in one sentence, describe what a Christian is. I wonder how many of those people would say, oh, those are those generous people. They are so forgiving with one another. They never hold a grudge. They just do nice things for one another because they love each other. And I say that and we, we snicker in the room, right? We all kind of do under our breath. And yet, that's exactly what we're called to be as children of God. But we are, we're often so quick to forget and to maybe even ignore the hospitality and the generosity and just the grace that God has shown us. Again, we, we have nothing to offer in exchange for our salvation. We cannot deserve God's grace, yet he gives freely to the believer. It pleased God to love us so that he provided through himself, through Jesus, someone to pay our sin debt, a way that we may be forgiven of our sin. Again, we can offer him nothing in return, yet God is unfailingly generous and merciful with his children. God doesn't withhold grace. That's a human thing. And that must cause us to look inside ourselves, to look at all of the times we've denied grace to a brother or sister. That we've denied kindness, that we've denied generosity, or just even care. And this must be the grace entitlement mindset that we've discussed before in here. I think that if we could fully comprehend the severity of the death we deserve due to our sin. When our sin is placed before a holy God, I think we would feel unworthy withholding from another. But instead, what do we do? We look at someone that has wronged us or someone that has hurt us and we deny them forgiveness or grace. We say, yes, well, until they apologize to me in exactly the way I want them to, they're on my list. We're not friends anymore because they have committed the ultimate sin. They have sinned against me. And I think to say that is a failure to recognize the deplorability of our sin before a holy God. We act like we're the one that's been sinned against when a brother and sister and I come into a disagreement. Or maybe even we've had a bad experience. We've given generously or we've given of ourselves to something to find whatever we gave unappreciated or even misused. And so then we then turn that into our justification for withholding generosity and niceness. I've been burned before, you have to understand. We feel as though we have this right To deny generosity, hospitality, or grace to another. Tony Merida writes, Christians often neglect this biblical ministry because of ignorance, unaware of the biblical teaching on hospitality, carelessness, 
failure to plan on it. Greediness. People often want to pamper themselves instead of serving others. Or fear. Being intimidated by it. If we think about our sin before a holy God, a God which, by the way, if you're like me, you've sinned enough since you woke up this morning to deserve eternal damnation. Um, it feels arrogant for us to get our feathers ruffled and to deny another just because we feel disrespected or unappreciated in some, in some way. And, and think about these ways. We get, we end friendships over political differences. We fail to show um, generous, generosity if someone has the gall to get our order wrong at a restaurant. We deny grace if someone cuts us off in traffic, Mrs. Moncrief. <laughs> I should not have said that. <laughs> um, we, we deny all of these things to even members of our own church family if we're involved in some sort of spat within our faith community. We can even deny one another. We can either deny a brother and a sister if our children are having a disagreement. And when it comes to our children, I don't want to spend too much time here, but they are, they are watching you. I know you don't always feel like they are. But they are watching us. And so what are they seeing when they watch us? Are they seeing generosity? Are they seeing love of neighbor? Are they seeing you show grace? Or are they seeing us denying grace? Are they seeing us holding grudges? Are our children hearing us bad-mouthing others at the house? It often amazes me as a parent how often we bombard our children with negativity. And time and time again, they watch us deny grace to another. And then we act surprised when our children have a negative attitude. We are so quick to go to war with one another. And in war, we want victory. We don't want peace. We want to win. We do this with a grace entitlement Mindset as though grace is ours to deny, as though there's any shred of us that deserves grace whatsoever. We fall into this belief that I must have earned the grace I got from God. You see, I tithe. I don't curse. I wore a tie today. I don't dance. That's, that's a Baptist thing for those of you that are new. Um, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to my grace, but Noah's, no, but Ethel stole my casserole dish, so I'm done with her. She's out. And I say all this to say it should be difficult for a believer that truly rests in the gospel to deny another. It should be difficult for one that truly rests in the gospel to deny another. If God denied grace and forgiveness, the way we feel entitled to deny it to one another, we'd be assured of eternity in hell. But here we see this Shunammite woman generously and with joy in her heart, seeking to get nothing in return, just seeking to be a blessing to God, to this man of God. Something else we see in this, this narrative, our second point this morning 
God delights in blessing the ordinary. That's not necessarily something that's, that kind of contradicts society's stance, right? We see the everyday and the, the mundane and the ordinary almost through a negative, through a negative light. But God created the ordinary. God loves his creation. You know, Genesis 1, right? God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. And when we read of women in scripture that God gave miracle babies to, right? This woman wasn't the first and she wasn't the last. We read of Sarah, past her childbearing years when God gave her Isaac. We read of Rebecca and she was barren and God gave her twins. We read of Rachel who was given Joseph and finally um, Benjamin. The mother of Samson, a judge that would rule over the Israelites before the time of kings. Hannah was thought to be barren, and she became the mother of Samuel. Elizabeth and Zechariah were childless before God gave them John the Baptist, foreshadowed by Elijah. And Mary was a virgin before God used her to enter this world in the flesh. Jesus foreshadowed by Elisha. You will notice that all of these women I just named are famous women. They play key roles in redemptive history. Their children are heavy hitters, right? If you went to vacation Bible school, you, you learn of some of these same men and their, their mothers from, through which a miracle was performed. Yet we have this Shunammite woman. And she's just ordinary. She's not even named. Her son's not named. Her husband's not even named. And they were financially an affluent family, but in terms of the unfolding of redemptive history, they're not really an important cog in the wheel. They don't really push the story forward at all. They were, they were ordinary. Yet it pleased a good God to bless this woman and to show her grace and to show her generosity. And I think that's somewhere where many of our churches today are slipping or where they're failing to teach biblically on the subject of the ordinary. Everybody today has to be special, right? Everybody's special. Everybody has a special mission or a special destiny. They're told to go out, find your fairy tale, go out, discover your grand mission. And so I, I took that and I figured I would just go search uh, church websites and look for mission statements and vision statements and slogans and things like that. And here's a few of them I, I came up with. Come to our church, learn how special you are. Come to our church and change the world. Discover your destiny at our church. We are called to be heroes for God. Let's be heroes together at our church. So don't, don't hear me wrong. I am, by the way, if you have a problem with anything I say, it is brandon.bentley at capshaw.org. Um, <laughs> but no, don't hear me wrong. I am not denying that we all have a destiny and we all have a purpose. We all have a calling in this world. And I will tell you what yours 
is, because it's the same as mine, so you don't need to take a class or fill out a little chart in the shape of a star to find out. You ready for it? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God delights in His creation because His creation brings Him glory. But we often do not find joy in the normal or the mundane. When we stop and think that if you're a believer, that God has always loved you. That should be all the special that we need as a believer. To need more than that, that guaranteed miracle to the believer of eternal life. To need more than that is to not really understand God's gift to us in the first place. But oftentimes we're not happy just being a, a pastor that leads music and preaches a few times a year. We need more, right? We're pastors. We need a book deal. You know, That's what all good pastors get, right? They get book deals. Um, we're not happy just to be an engineer that, that, that leads his family well, that for the glory of God gets up and goes to work every day and does whatever, y'all, I don't, math, whatever y'all do. You know, we're, <laughs> somehow we're just, not, we're just not satisfied by that. We want appreciation. We want admiration from the world. And our world rejects the ordinary. But we're to find joy and contentment in the ordinary because it's God's creation. Michael Horton puts it this way. CNN will not be showing up at a church that is simply trusting God to do extraordinary things through his ordinary means of grace delivered by ordinary servants. But God will week after week. These means of grace and the ordinary fellowship of the saints that nurtures and guides us through our life may seem frail, but they are jars that carry a rich treasure. Christ with all of his saving benefits. But we have to be extra. We have to be above and beyond. We have to be more. As though somehow God's election of us, that's not enough for me to find contentment. And when we do this, we're not failing to be great Christians. We're failing to be ordinary. This Shunammite woman, she's not a great hero of biblical history. Her generosity is not the generosity of some wonderful, famous philanthropist. Her generosity is that of an ordinary believer honoring God. Her faith is the faith of a believer. Her contentment is found in anonymity. The woman is not presented anywhere as an example of some great and some great believer or some biblical hero. Rather, God is showing us, I believe, what an ordinary believer is or should be. When we fail or refuse to show grace and generosity to another, or when our walk is wrecked by a lack of faith, we're not failing to be great, we are failing to be ordinary. And we feel often that we are inadequate. But the good news is if you're here today and you belong to Jesus Christ, there's, there's no such thing as inadequate for you. It is the love of God that makes us adequate before God. Works 
and accomplishments. They do nothing to curry or to force or to unlock God's blessing. It's the the election of God that makes us special or blessed. If you hear me say nothing else this morning, we say we have nothing to boast of apart from Jesus Christ in us. And we see this woman here. She is absolutely delighted in her station. He asked, what do you want? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she, she answers, I dwell among my own people, which is basically a way of saying, I'm good right here where I'm at. And that's not necessarily what our world teaches. Contentment is not often our practice. I was, when I was thinking about this woman and I was thinking about worldly mantras or slogans, I thought about the one I've seen on bumper stickers in a bunch of places. It says, well-behaved women rarely change the world. And we often celebrate world change and rebelliousness as a virtue. And we're not really commanded primarily to change the world. We're commanded to be obedient, to glorify God in all we do. And if the body is glorifying God, world change is inevitable. But with our great leaders or those that we admire, often seems, they often are seen as one that maybe pushes against or stretches or distorts. And here we see a woman that is humble. She's content and generous. And even when she's at her lowest point, she has a calming faith in God. She is one content in her life, and she desires to honor God. Our third point this morning It often pleases God to keep his purposes hidden from us. We see here of this miracle, and God still performs miracles today, but 99.999% of the time, um, a death, even the tragic death of a child, as we read here, um, most of the time, that death signifies the end of one's earthly life. And we cry out to God in grief and pain, as this woman must have been doing. We experience the phenomena of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, right? And I imagine the mother here in this passage must be dealing with this confusing array of emotions. You see, Lord... I didn't want a child. I I didn't really list a child on my want list, right? I was nice to your guy. And so you decided to give me a child. I was grateful for that child, but then you, you took him from me. How are you going to be glorified through my son dying? What did I do? For you to let this happen to me. Even Elisha does not know God's plan here. He says in verse 27, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me. 
when we speak of God's providence, or which you could do a whole message on easily, but the, the way God orders all things toward his design in, how many times have we found ourselves questioning God? While we look from a worldly and fleshly perspective, we question God. I'll give you um, an example of my own failure. Um, one of the little added bonuses to teaching the Word of God is you're constantly bombarded with how often and how many times you fail. Um, to the point where I would say if you're, if you're teaching the Word of God and you're not constantly bombarded with your failings, you're probably a false teacher. Um, the Word of God is a, a, a convicting thing, right? But my son... My son's hearing went from bad to gone when he was about four years old. He went from being a, a hard of hearing child to a deaf child. I was, I was wrecked. I had fantasized. I was a musician. Son, I'm going to name him Bo, like the guy from the Dukes of Hazard, and, and we're going to sit around and play music together. It's going to be great. And that wasn't the plan. So my, my son loses his hearing. We go to the doctor. We find out this is inevitable. There's going to be surgeries. Uh, but natural hearing's never coming back. It's gone. And I cried out to God. Um, lots of anger. Lots of frustration. And finally, for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to sit down and lecture God. On how he had failed me. <laughs> you see, God, here's the deal. I was a professional musician. I, I was going all the way, by the way. I had everything lined up behind me. You see, I walked away from that life to love and to serve you. God, I had a record deal. I was going to be a rock star. I'd opened with the best bands in the world. I had, I had played with some of the best musicians in the world. I walked away from that to love and serve you. I left that life behind so that I could be a good husband to my wife and a good father to my son. And I did it all to glorify you. You see, God, pay attention. You owe me a healthy son. You see, God, it is unfair to make a man a Christian musician... And then to take away his son's hearing, it's not fair. It's mean. What did I do to deserve this? And you guys are my church family, as we talked about earlier. I know some of you are struggling with this right now. You have either recently said goodbye or are preparing to say goodbye to someone or people that you love. And, we, and you feel these emotions. I can tell you these emotions are a natural symptom of our fleshly condition. But what was I doing here? First of all, I was focused on the immediate, not the eternal. I wanted an earthly, fleshly, quick fix miracle. I wanted to feel better right now. And as for my bitterness and confusion... 
and frustration. God leveled me when he showed me that I had focused so intently on what I felt I had sacrificed to love God that I had not even considered what he sacrificed to love me. God and his sacrifice, his atonement for our sins, gives the believer an assured and eternal miracle. The believer is, is promised eternal health and joy, blissful worship. And when we look at God's eternal gift, it makes something like the ability to hear for a few years on earth just not as significant. I was focused on my flesh, and I certainly wasn't rejoicing in the providence of God. Now, of course, now I have countless times seen God glorify himself through the life and struggles of my son and our family. Our family story is one of countless blessings. My son was even used as the patient X in the forward of a book on cochlear implants. But we are so often blinded by wanting to feel better now, and wanting earthly flesh-focused Miracles and demanding those for God. We forget that not one thing happens that God will not use for his glory. John MacArthur summarizes it this way. Read the Bible and you will find that God uses the thunder and the lightning and the rain and the waters and the rivers and the hail and frost and the ice and the snow and the cold and the heat and the sunshine, the animals, and the birds, and the beasts, and the nations, the governments, the kings, the princes, the rulers, the governors. He uses everything and everybody, and he pulls it all together to accomplish exactly what he wants done. And within this, all of these beings are making random choices. All of these things are functioning in a way that seems, at least to them, to be detached from any sovereign control. But he sets the birth and death of every man. He sees all they do. He knows all they think. He hears all they say. He uses their good. He uses their bad. He uses the free choices of men. They are made to perfectly fit into his eternal purposes. Even the choices being made by fallen angels called demons are fitting perfectly into his purposes. So for the woman in our story today, the resurrection of this child was just a temporary fix, right? It, it pleased God to do this, to be good to this woman in this way, but that child still eventually died, right? This miracle was just a, a temporary avoidance of the wages of sin. But we praise God that Jesus Christ has eternally crushed and paid the penalty of sin for us. We read of Elisha walking into the room. where It says in verse 33, he prayed. Just an aside there, you'll notice that prophets, prophets pray for miracles. Jesus speaks and commands a miracle. You know, so Elisha prays over this boy. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. 
In verse 34, Scripture says, Elisha laid down upon the child his mouth on his mouth, his eyes were his eyes were, his hands were his hands were. See, in, in Hebrew law, the dead were ritually unclean. Numbers 19 tells us that a person that had had contact with a, a dead person had to stay outside the community for seven days until they were no longer considered impure or unclean. But what does Elisha do here? As a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, he puts his clean, healthy, living body on this child. He receives the uncleanliness, the indignities of this child's death upon himself. Scripture says he stretches out his body over him. Stretching out his body over the curse of sin. And hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ would do the same thing for us when he, with his arms stretched over a cross of our making, would take upon his shoulders our sin, the foulness of death for every single believer. He would stand before a holy God with that foulness, that uncleanliness of our sin and death on his shoulders. He would bear God's wrath for his people. He would bear the wrath for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He would then say, it is finished. He would die, and three days later he would rise from the dead. In doing so... He conquered sin that we have no other hope of conquering. He paid a debt that we have no other hope of paying. The indignities of death were conquered by Jesus. And for the believer, either the one that's nearing death or the one that's watching your loved ones near death, Earthly death can only mean to be in the presence of God. We may, in our flesh, miss the presence of a loved one. But let us not forget the unfailing kindness, generosity of a God that suffered a death that we deserve, paid a debt we could not pay, and provided a joy that we cannot comprehend. As my team comes forward here for our, our final song, I want to... We learned how in Elijah, Jesus Christ himself pointed to Elijah as being the prototype, if you will, of, of John the Baptist. The man that would herald the king of kings. And in Elisha, we see a prophet that points directly to the son of God, who takes delight in creation, both extraordinary and ordinary, who chooses to bless who he will for his own pleasure. Who blesses us beyond what we ever thought was possible or certainly what we ever deserve. And then when the wages of sin demand certain death, Jesus steps in to erase the assured penalty of our sin, enduring it for us that we might have eternal life. Let's, let's pray together, church.